So hello everybody and welcome to the OMC Mindfulness in the Workplace podcast series. So each of these sessions explores a different aspect of mindfulness in different workplace contexts as well as key themes that we believe will be relevant to you. I'm Steve Ware from the University of Oxford Mindfulness Centre and today we're going to be discussing the online delivery of mindfulness programmes. So my guest today is Ted Meissner. Hello, Ted. Hi, how are you? I'm fine, thank you. How are you? Good, nice to be here. Really nice to have you. Thanks for sparing the time for us. So Ted, just before we just before we get into the nitty gritty, I'm just gonna, just for the benefit of our listeners, some of whom I'm sure will know you, but maybe some of whom don't, I'm just gonna read you out your, your short bio just to kind of set the scene, if that's all right. So Ted created the UMass Medical School Center for Mindfulness MBSR Live Online Program. He's a certified MBSR teacher and has been teaching mindfulness for over 20 years. Wow. He's the host of the podcast Present Moment, Mindfulness Practice and Science, which I can recommend. I've listened to a few. Has been published in Perspectives on Psychological Science, Mindful, and the International Journal of Whole Person Care. He also mentors MBSR teachers, has taught masterclasses for the Oxford Mindfulness Centre about teaching mindfulness live online. That might come in handy today. And is the Executive Director of Mindfulness Practice Centre. So it's a very impressive bio, Ted. And uh, you're very well positioned to fill us in on, on all things online delivery wise when it comes to when it comes to mindfulness i'm always curious when i meet people that have and, and you and i were chatting just before i press record we, we realized that we met uh, and this is relevant actually because ollie who who taught um uh, i think it was the omc's first version of finding peace i think it was the first time they did that online wasn't it yeah. he taught that and you and you um very ably assisted him you were kind of the the tech expert online expert so you and i kind of met and ollie is on this course that I'm on and, and whilst I'm hosting this podcast first and foremost I'm a student of that program so the people listening to this that at least on this intake will, will, will know Ollie and so I kind of know you and I know you've got this great passion for mindfulness and I'm always curious when I meet people that share such a passion and I remember John Kabat-Zinn described it once as a love affair and those those words always kind of resonated so I'm always curious as to where did that passion how did it start with you? How did you how did you find yourself doing this? Yeah, that's a really great question. It's actually one of the things I start with uh, in my own podcast is asking people about their background. And, mm. and it's interesting the variety uh, of how people came to this practice. Uh, for me, the gateway was having difficulty with focus, uh, keeping attention in spot. Of course, it's something that we do in mindfulness. And at the time, because this was many years ago, uh, having only traditional centers to go to uh, and going to one of those and just that first 10 minute meditation in silence was extremely difficult uh, and quite revealing because it was the first time I took a look inside what was going on in my head and being a bit shocked by how active this was. Yeah. And over yeah. time, uh, the value of that was, was not simply finding some calm and stability in that, 
but the greater benefit and much more difficult benefit was seeing myself more clearly in ways that I needed to change in how I was, how I interacted with people. And that, that continues, uh, that is a constant unfolding mm -hmm. and that being able to not only grow myself, because many people who are teachers know that this really is one of the most wonderful, beneficent, selfish things we do <laughs> in engaging our own practice is through teaching. We learn so much from that, mm -hmm. but also being able to connect with people in ways that they have not, and I, I only get to do in this way through this practice. But also once they have gotten an idea of how mindfulness may be meaningful to them in their life, not me and mine, but then yeah. theirs. To me, that's the most fascinating aspect of this is people who have very different views than I do sharing at the end of a, like an MBSR course, this really helped me get more in touch with, and then they will name a particular view they have that's totally different from mine. And I couldn't be happier for them because yeah. that is what is most meaningful to them. That's wonderful work to be doing. I can really relate to that. So I just left IBM this year after 28 years. And I did a lot of good stuff technically. I always had technical roles. So I was kind of um, delivering technical solutions or consulting on solutions. And I got some nice, I got some nice awards, some kind of outstanding technical achievement awards on this kind of stuff. But before I left, I was teaching Finding Peace. And, and it was during the pandemic. So I kind of added that extra dimension, which we'll get to in a second. And I can honestly say the comments from the people I got that, that finished that program with me was so moving, so meaningful, so powerful that it, by some distance, made it the most rewarding thing I ever did at IBM. Yeah. So I understand completely that. And, and they kind of thank you, don't they? And I find myself almost thanking the teachers. And then the teachers normally say, well, hang on. I was just kind of a conduit. I just kind of was a pointer almost. And you did the work. You sat on the mat. You. But um, thank you. That's, um... that's that, that refreshing of uh, when there's uh, gratitude at being on the journey with them. Of course, that's that's my great joy to be on the journey with them. Yeah. And that that fine reminder that I didn't do your meditation, you did. So be sure to thank yourself for the time mm. put into this. And Steve, you and I, I share this as our first chance to get to know each other a little bit. Your background is as a technical person mm. in the business world large mm. company like IBM. I yep. used to work for IBM. That's right. Many. I heard that. Yes. And like you, my career has been technical in large corporations and in business mm. management. And, and that's a very different kind of background than those of us who are also in our personal lives, meditators and yeah. teachers. And so the blending of these uh, very disparate worlds one of mindfulness and and seemingly how that that couldn't possibly work with a corporate world yes it can yes it has for a long time and now we're starting to see more of an understanding from both sides that these can be complementary and helpful to one another mm. absolutely and, and then in this this class that i'm in that's been led by by susan and leone we've got it's a, it's a great class because we've literally got people from all over the world and I know when you helped out, Ollie, you were getting up at 
up as four in the morning, I think, to, to help out. Yeah, we've got people in Australia, New Zealand staying up late. We've got people in the east and west coast of the US, uh, Japan, Singapore, Europe, you know, it literally um, covers the globe. And, and so it's such a breadth of diverseness and also diversity and also different teaching experience. You know, we've got people that have, have taught this clinically. We've got people that are in teaching this in the workplaces and just the whole myriad of workplaces from, from corporates to legal firms to, you know, the list goes on. So it's been really nice to bring everybody together. And, and um, I'm learning an awful lot, not just from Susan and Leone, but from the other participants that bring an awful lot to this. And, and it's kind of evidence, if it were needed, of, of how much mindfulness in the workplace is growing yeah. and continuing to go and is a good fit yeah it is and and that's uh i know a bit contrary to attitudes that may exist about what the corporate world what it's like and and that is true in many instances some of those uh, ideas and beliefs mm. but one of the things that you're sharing here and i think this is kind of getting into our, our nitty-gritty of online and in person and some of the advantages that I think live online, and I want to clearly distinguish live online being different mm. from recorded programs, is that in the past, we were somewhat limited by geographic proximity to a particular teacher, and that uh, travel was difficult. The expense of it made it out of the reach of people who have been disenfranchised in mindfulness and in traditional settings for a very long time. This was the territory of people who were at least secure enough, if not affluent enough, to be able to travel and take time off and all the rest of the things that are a necessary part of that. So one of the advantages I see to uh, these online capabilities that digital technology is allowing for is that it is opening it up. We're no longer limited by geographic boundaries. One of the greatest joys in teaching online is I, I typically will get anywhere from nine to a dozen different countries yeah. represented in just a single, say, MBSR course. And that in a, a program, a series uh, that I am hosting with Anne Tuig from Ireland and John Kabat-Zinn has people from, in our very first one of these series for mindfulness teachers, uh, over 50 different countries wow. <laughs> represented at that with literally hundreds of people participating in it. And as you're mentioning, there is a a tremendous diversity and expansion of the experiences of those involved, because once mm. again, it's no longer the people who are in your immediate geographic area and it's opening it up to the world. Uh, and, and to me, that's one of the, the most fun things about it is that I get to learn from the perspectives of people who have different cultural uh, norms and ideas and attitudes and ways of engaging with the practice that is still touching them very deeply and influencing their life. Lovely. Yeah, thank you. So when did you first teach online, Ted? I know when I read out in your bio, you, you created the MBSR Live Online Program for the UMass Medical School Center for Mindfulness. How long have you been teaching online? So online teaching, I was doing that before I joined the center in 2015. I had, as, and this is familiar to you and my day job as a 
a, a corporate individual as um, management in a very large uh, corporation, did a career shift uh, in 2014 that was not, not completely abandoning everything I'd done before. And like you have been very uh, pleased and proud with the work I had done and being able to shift to teaching mindfulness still within my same company. Uh, I was the first full-time teacher hire within that environment because they were starting a mindfulness program and as, who was already a teacher uh, and already volunteering time to do guided meditations and drop-ins and having already at this point many years experience in not just practice but teaching as well. Uh, I was a, a good fit for that uh, and this was at the same time as the possibility of becoming a teacher at the Center for Mindfulness and just the timing of that didn't quite quite work out uh, and the convenience of that didn't quite work out. So became a, a full-time uh, mindfulness teacher in uh, 2014. And although we also did in-person programs, uh, this is for a company that knew very well and embraced digital technology. Many of our meetings at this point were already uh, live online using okay. various tools that we had available to us. So the shift to doing programming online uh, was, a, was a pretty straightforward one, especially with someone who had a background in this. There, there wasn't yeah. any nervousness about it. There was great familiarity and confidence in it. And so we're able to reach and do uh, three or four programs every quarter uh, on mindfulness uh, and did that for a year. And then the opportunity, again, a different opportunity arose, not as a, a full-time teacher at the Center for Mindfulness at UMass, but as their manager of online programming and community development. And so took that job and uh, stayed with the center until just a few moments, a uh, few months before it uh, closed uh, a year or two ago. So when you were teaching back in 2015, did there did you have the was the concept of breakout rooms in whatever you used to deliver the course? Did they exist then? Yeah, the tools that we were using uh, to teach that course did not have that capability. Right. But uh, for about gosh, at this point, in, I think nine years, another organization, I'm the executive director for the Secular Buddhist Association. Uh, one of my colleagues there, Mark Nickelbein, uh, and I have been hosting, this is mainly Mark's work, it was really the, just the technical setup of this, uh, have been hosting drop-in sessions twice a month. And we used, at the time, it was uh, Adobe, uh, there's an Adobe tool uh, to meet online, and that did have the ability to do small breakout rooms. Okay. We used that for many years, and then a few years ago switched to Zoom because it yeah. was less expensive, a lot more stable, yeah, <laughs> uh, and course, had yeah. even more capabilities than than we required for that. And that is still continuing uh, today. So we've we've been doing. Uh, live online drop-ins with breakouts for about nine years at this wow. point. I think we're one of the oldest organizations to have done that because we were a very early adopter of that kind of modality. Yeah. So was that you talked earlier about the, the the huge advantage of online programs, live online programs being 
you know, anyone can connect. And I guess if you're doing an eight week course, you can truly do an eight week course. You don't have to have people say, oh, I'm, I'm flying in from so-and-so. Can we do it in four weeks? Can we do it? So you can really allow that period for them to practice and nurture and, and really get the full course experience. Was there anything else driving? So if you've been doing this pre-COVID and obviously for people listening, um, so, so it's the end of November, 2020, um, which I'm sure will be a year that everybody remembers. Um, but you're talking pre-COVID here. So there was no yeah. in necessity in that sense. You, you weren't forced to deliver online. Were there any um, factors, positive factors that drove you to, to moving it online other than the ability to reach people in different countries? Yeah, very much so. Um, one of the big inhibitors, as I've mentioned before, to people attending a class is if there's nobody teaching the particular mindfulness or any other kind of program that you want to take, if they're not doing it nearby, yeah, you have to go somewhere. And that itself is is pretty big for a lot of people. Yeah. There's childcare, pet care, what do you do with your spouses? Yeah, your kid, all the rest of that needs yeah. to be worked out. And that that itself, that's a very big part of this, not just the expense of it, but the logistics of it can be really problematic. So one of the things, in addition to this opens it up to people who are geographically isolated and getting the diversity of people from different areas. One of the things that became very clear early on, and this is through the work of Mark's hosting or, or drop-in or practice circle through the Secular Buddhist Association, is that the connections that you develop between individuals are every bit as strong as we would in person. And so from a, a business standpoint, putting on that hat for a moment, this enabled us to not just have classes with diversity, which is terrific, not just reach people who are elsewhere, but it shifted our customer base from whatever the local population is yeah. or those who are well off enough to be able to travel and arrange for all the other things that need to be reached. It's you no know, three, I think it's the last I look at the numbers, 3.9 billion with a B people who have access to online, who have their own accounts of some sort. Wow. So that's a that that that's a huge expansion of your reach. And this yeah. is one of the the things that uh, we noticed early on at the Center for Mindfulness and starting to teach more online, my recommendation had been really let's embrace this strongly and have at least as many classes, if not twice as many classes online as we have in person. Because when we first opened up the online courses, they filled within a day or two. Wow. Because there was, a, and it was from people who were otherwise couldn't do the travel stuff because that made a very big difference. And I guess were they cheaper as well? Uh, same, you... same price for registration. Okay. The, the ex, because the, the price is based on teacher contact hours, yeah. materials involved, recordings involved, all of that. What it did was it was far less expensive for people who had to travel Yeah, because of all those ancillary costs that would come with that. So it, it, it was interesting to see that of that 3.9 billion people in the world, there were many who were, yeah, this is great. This is fine. Some who were a little hesitant and skeptical about 
the online experience, which was relatively new at the time. Yeah. And, and now we're not seeing that, that, that this is the norm and this is all pre-COVID. Uh, and we were still seeing people who were interested in that. And it took a while for the center to, to get to, yeah, we should really do this. So that within a year, we were offering twice as many online classes, MBSR and MBCT live online than we were in person and they were filling faster <laughs> they had the same completion rates for the in-person and the reviews the responses in our pre and post surveys of what was this like were indistinguishable wow that's was, great that you've got a side-by-side -side comparison because that was going to be one of my questions yeah and there hasn't and i want to be very clear and, and open about this is that uh, much as I, I, I wanted to do that and, and we did not have the resources to bring to bear on it uh, while at the center, this is not a scientific study. So we don't mm -hmm. have, here are the published results of this. I would sure. dearly love to have that. Other groups, uh, I believe there, there are a few that have done side-by-side -side comparisons okay. of online and live. Um, I, but this was not that, this was from what we were seeing and reading the reviews and and as we look at this, not being able to yeah. tell, was this from one of the live classes or was mm, this from okay. the online yeah. classes? Great. I had somebody say to me, uh, another advantage that I didn't necessarily think of, he did a he did live online finding piece with me over the summer. Mm -hmm. And he said, I would have been more anxious about being there if I hadn't been in the kind of safety of my home yeah. kind of behind a screen it just gave me that little extra layer of protection that he felt he needed certainly in the first few weeks because it's very different for him it's a very different kind of course for him he was a little bit unsure about how much to open up and as the weeks went on he, he was he was great and he got an awful lot from it but in in his closing review he said i really liked the fact that it was live virtual it was a benefit to me because it made me feel less anxious if i'd been in a big group and we'd all been kind of sitting in this horseshoe i probably would have been a little bit more closed at least to start with so yeah what happened in out of um again this is pre-covid in discussions with uh sharon hadley of omc mm -hmm. uh, there was an interest in having a course in teaching teachers how to do live online uh, and, and part of this came from the work with ollie and the class that you attended is okay we do this, this is the first time and hey how about creating a class for this yeah and so that, that led to uh, my building a few videos and though those were well received, it was like, you know, I wanna, we would also like to do a, a live class and led, led to the master classes that you mentioned. And one aspect of that uh, was exploring, here are some of the things that you might wanna consider about an advantage of live online. One of those was just as you described, people are ostensibly and hopefully in the place they may already feel the safest. Yeah. And that's a very different experience than what I, I would refer to as first day of school. <laughs> yeah. Going to a place you don't know, you don't mm -hmm. know the people, am I in the right spot? Am I going to get there in time? The yeah. trains aren't running, my car yeah. broke down, all of that goes away. Yeah. And you're in your home. And as any, and that's a, that itself is its own experience. As a teacher, you get an insight into where people are 
And that insight itself can inform how you respond to the participants and how you work with the course. Because for some, you may notice things that you wouldn't get the opportunity to notice in an in-person class at a center or some other place because yeah. you don't have those insights. Thank you. And are there any, any negatives? We've, we've talked a lot about the positives of, of live online. Any drawbacks with, with online deliveries? Well, there, there are a few things for people to be aware of. Uh, most of it is perception drawbacks. They aren't so much about the technology or teaching live online. They are more about the perception of how to do it that, oh, I can just turn on my computer and away I go. It's a little bit more than that. Mm. And, and knowing a few things ahead of time, let alone being familiar with the technology you're using, you don't need to be a tech expert with this to be able to do these programs. Um, and I, I've had a couple of notes in the past few weeks uh, that people have been reminded as they've shown up to these sessions with Antuig and John Kabat-Zinn and I that, oh yeah, online, I was very concerned about that. And as it turns out, this was great. And it really opened up taking those classes at OMC and seeing that I can do this. So the first misperception that's a challenge is on the on the part of those who may have only taught in person and see live online as lesser. I challenge that, I ask why? And they say, well, I can't see the entire body of people who are in the room. And, and I will say, okay, let's try something here. And I will lean back in my chair and I will put my hands behind my head and I will look to the sky and I will ask, can you see me right now? Like, yes, I can. Do you need to see my entire body to know that I have checked out? And I'll say, well, no. I'm like, okay. Let me ask another question. How many of you, and I'll ask this, raise your hand if, when you're doing mindful movement, you touch the participants in your class and no hands go up because we don't do that. Like, okay. Uh, so our sense of touch, that's not a part of what we do in person. Uh, how many of you actively sniff your participants? Again, no hands go up because that's silly. We don't smell our participants. Okay, so a sense of smell is off. And I presume also don't taste them. Uh, so that's also off. You see them, you hear them. They see you, they hear you. You are able to convey emotion with your voice, with your posture doesn't have to be the entire body. Most of our communication, physical communication, body language, is through our face. Yeah. That's all still there. So again, I ask, where is that gap? And that, that really has made some teachers have to rethink what are the things I'm really missing and how much of it is, I like doing it this way. And I get that. I yeah. do too. Yeah. That's fun. And so can online. And after trying it for a bit, whether they were an enthusiastically jumping into the pool of digital delivery or whether they got pushed into the pool, because then COVID happened. And for our first class uh, the, of the live classes on teaching live online through OMC, COVID had just hit the news a few weeks before. So in that first class were people who 
suddenly realized they, they'd already signed up for this for other reasons, but now they had to. If they didn't shift to online, they couldn't teach at all. And suddenly this became really, really important. Yeah. And we were able to help and allow people to continue teaching when otherwise they would have had to stop and do something else. Mm. Lovely. Ted, I knew this would happen. We've been speaking for almost half an hour already. <laughs> um, maybe a really short answer to this question. I think I know it already, but I'm gonna ask you anyway. You kind of touched on the fact that if it's online delivery, it has to be live virtual. So is that a fairly simple, you, you wouldn't imagine that you could pre-record a course and get anything like the value that you could if you taught it live virtually? I would, I would say that I'm skeptical of that. Uh, yeah. it, it's not that recordings are bad, they're not. People can learn from them. Mm. What's missing from that is the interaction, the ability to ask a question, to have a sense of being heard, if I'm watching a recording, even a great recording with video and all the whistles, uh, I, I don't come away with that sense of having been heard or seen, even if I'm not sharing, that makes a difference and that supports my practice. Um, so it's not that recorded programs are bad and you can't get anything out of them. You can. It is missing certain aspects to an interactive contact hours kind of program where there is inquiry. Inquiry is absent in those kinds of programs. And yeah. Saki Santorelli, who was the executive director of the Center for Mindfulness for many years, and I imagine John has said this as well, is the heart of MBSR, for example, is inquiry. And that's absent in recorded programs. So they, they can, I think, contribute to the overall experience. But if there isn't the ability to have interaction live interaction where you see you hear the other person and this is one of the the, the differences and kinds of live programs there's email blasts where you never actually talk to someone there's back and forth that's some interaction and then there's on the the cadillac end of oh it's live i can see you and you can be heard yeah. and you can ask your questions directly and get a a response that's appropriate to the moment and what I'm feeling from you as a participant. Mm. And I think that's even more pronounced, as you say, with COVID, isn't it? Because we, we've lost so much connection, uh, mm -hmm. certainly in the UK here. We're still locked down. I'm in Portsmouth in the south of England, and we're in what they call tier two. So, you know, I still can't go to restaurants. I still can't see my family. And so it's you know, the, the thought of me, I guess, after doing a full day's work, if somebody offered me a mindfulness class and it was just watching somebody, if it was just online, I'd be thinking, I want to talk to somebody a little bit. I would just want to be heard probably more than ever. So, Ted, I'm very conscious of the time. I could talk to you all day, I think, and, and you've been very generous with your time. But I think just before we close, you've given us some great tips there. Any final comments, anything else you'd like to add just before I wrap up and, and close this podcast? The advent of digital technology and the ability to have live online programming is changing things. COVID or no COVID, it's changing things. I think now that people have been, whether again, enthusiastically jumping in the pool or whether they've been pushed in because of COVID, there's now the sense that they can do this. And that's changing the landscape a bit. 
that individuals now have the same capability and same reach as institutions that might otherwise have been in, uh, for want of a better word, leadership positions in this. Uh, and that's very empowering mm. for mindfulness teachers. One of the challenges that comes with that, however, is some things that I see that are concerning to, uh, to those of us who have a deep practice and lots of training and continue to train ourselves in gaps that we notice in our own practice and our teaching is the availability of, I see on Facebook an advertisement for mindfulness scripts, a couple hundred of mindfulness scripts. And my concern is that, well, I can pay X amount of dollars and set myself up as a mindfulness teacher and read other people's words. And I don't know what I'm doing. Mm. And mindfulness is not right in all situations. It's not a cure-all. It's not a replacement for therapy. And you do need training. You might be yeah. a really great teacher. And there are still things that we need to know to do this right and, and be of service to those who take the program. So I'm very interested in um, the works of people like uh, Becca Crane and all on the competencies of mindfulness teachers and BI TAC and other kinds. That's not the only one. That's one of many. And, and ethics in the field. That's also something that uh, is a, a personal passion in seeing how, as this playing field becomes level, how do we behave in ways that are equitable and fair with one another? So that's what I'm, I'm eager to see how that unfolds in the years to come. Thank you. Yeah, hugely important. And um, one of the things I, as, as I teach and as I develop as a teacher, probably the thing I still find the hardest is to not rehearse meditations I lead. Just, I know what I'm doing and I know the content of the meditation I'm leading, but then there's that time where you just step off the edge and the words will come. And so the thought of me thinking someone's kind of gone online and then gone, okay, I've got this script of a great meditation teacher. It would just be so obvious as a, as a, as an attendee, I think it, it would just scream at you that it's, it's being read. And yeah. so thank you. Well, Ted, thank you very much. Where should people go if they want to learn a little more about you? Well, there are a couple of different places they can go. Uh, there's presentmomentmindfulness.com. Uh, and that's where the podcast is. And honestly, that, the reason I recommend that, and you can hit the contact on that, that'll come to me, is that that's not about me at all. That's about the guests. Uh, Willem Kaken, for example, is one of many uh, and, and just tremendous teachers, practitioners, authors, lending their time and their voice as we talk about mindfulness, learn more about the science of it and what it really means. Because Going through scientific papers as one part of what shows up in the podcast can be tough. This is talking to the researchers and plain English. What does this? What does this mean? What was interesting mm. to you about this? It's the human side of that. So that'd be the place I'd recommend most. Thank you. There's some great stuff on there. And if people are interested in the, in the conversation that you had with Zindel Siegel about this exact topic, that's also on that website, isn't it? I'd recommend people go and listen to that. So thank you very much, Ted. Thank you to everybody listening. We hope you enjoyed today's episode and we look forward to seeing you again for the next episode.